Hello, I'm Sarah Williams, the Head of Surrogacy, Fertility, Adoption and Modern Family Law at Payne Hicks Beach. My guest today is a Californian fertility attorney, Rich Vaughan. Rich is a towering figure in the world of fertility and international surrogacy. After his own experience of becoming a parent via egg donation and surrogacy, he founded the International Fertility Law Group, one of the best known fertility law firms in the world, with offices in Los Angeles, New York, Dallas and Beijing. He has helped thousands of intended parents around the world create their families via assisted reproduction. The information in this podcast is correct at the time of going to press, the 4th of February. Hello, Rich. Hi, how are you, Sarah? I'm very well. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. So I'm calling you from lockdown London, and COVID is very much on everybody's minds at the moment. So I would be really interested to talk to you about how intended parents and families are navigating their way around international surrogacy arrangements in particular and the sort of COVID scenarios and the difficulties that are being thrown up by that. But first of all, I'd quite like you to explain why California is such a surrogacy-friendly state. Well, California is considered to be one of the most popular places for surrogacy for a number of reasons. It's, it's a bit of a what came first, the chicken or the egg, um, in terms of whether they're the plethora of IVF clinics and third-party matching programs is the draw or the law and, and which came first. Um, yeah. We're fortunate in California to have five California Supreme Court cases on the issue of assisted reproduction and surrogacy. All of these decisions are very supportive of intended parents, very supportive of procreative freedom. And because of that case law, I think we've, we've become a very popular place to engage in assisted reproduction. Um, in addition to the case law, we also have very clear legislation addressing surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation, which is quite rare to find in any state, let alone a state that also has uh, very favorable and strong case rulings. Yes, yes, that's right. And so in terms of the rights of the intended parents, I mean, obviously, if you're an English intended family and you're going over to the States to look, certainly in terms of establishing legal parentage, California is incredibly progressive. Yes, well, it's quite clear here um, under the law, uh, again, the case law and the legislative law, that an intended parent engaging in assisted reproduction shall be the legal parent, even in the surrogacy statute in California, if your surrogacy contract complies with the statutory requirements. The legislation says the court shall enter the order declaring the intended parents as the legal parents. And I think there's an overriding, you know, just understanding here and appreciation for the fact that intended parents are indeed procreating. They are creating a family. They just happen to need medical assistance to do so. So, of course, they're parental intent should be honored. And we have to do it through a court order in, in a surrogacy case, just to make it clear that the surrogate who delivers is not the parent. But there's really no question as to the intended parent's rights. Yeah. And it, just in terms of the surrogate's rights, of course, the surrogate will also receive uh, legal advice and be advised on the terms of the surrogacy arrangement. Absolutely. The surrogate uh, receives a lot of support, education and guidance throughout the process. She, first of all, will be screened and vetted and, and given an orientation by 
a matching program. If she's working with a matching program, she will have separate legal representation as well. She will have a psychological evaluation and access to psychological support throughout the arrangement. And just talking about the rights of the intended parents and the surrogates, I was drawn to your comment in the New York Times in respect of the case in Michigan of the couple who, although they have entered into a surrogacy arrangement and with their genetic own children, they are ending up going down the route of adoption. It's just a remarkable scenario. Well, it's an unfortunate but unavoidable result in the state of Michigan, given the current state of the law in Michigan. Michigan has made gestational surrogacy illegal uh, for many, many years now as a consequence or reaction to the Baby M case where a surrogate, uh, this was in the 80s, uh, she you know, changed her mind and wanted to keep the baby. And so many states, Michigan included, at that time, you know, followed up with their own legislation, basically not allowing surrogacy in their state. They didn't want that tragedy to happen. And so because that law still exists on the books in Michigan today, the court really had no other choice but to deny their request for parental rights through a surrogacy parentage petition. Instead, they are forced to go through the adoption process. Uh, The result will be the same in the end. It is a little offensive that they have to adopt their own child, but that's the only avenue they have in the state of Michigan at the moment. Yes, and by reason of going down that adoption process, they have to engage with criminal records, background checks, providing their fingerprints and having sort of social services, investigations. It's really at odds with the whole sort of surrogacy journey, if you like, just welcoming their own children. It definitely is uh, at odds with you know how we, we view assisted reproduction and surrogacy in general, that they would have to be evaluated in terms of their fitness for being a parent, uh, the fitness of their home, their finances, all of those things. But in the end, you know, the court doesn't have any other choice but to take them through that procedure to ensure that the child's best interests are being served. And we have, on the 15th of February, we have the New York Child Parent Security Act coming into force. How do you think that will be received? Well, it's definitely a welcome change from the many, many years of surrogacy being banned, you know, just compensated gestational surrogacy being banned in New York. So that's a big shift in New York. There are many pieces of the Child Parent Security Act, the CPSA, that are um, definitely advances as well for surrogacy, including the Surrogates Bill of Rights and the fact that surrogacy matching programs must be licensed, which is unique. New York is the only state in the country now that requires surrogacy matching programs to be licensed. So that's, that's an advancement for all, and I hope that other states will follow that model. There are some other aspects of the CPSA that are a bit more restrictive And because there were anti-surrogacy forces at play in in the political environment uh, in which the the bill was passed, there are lots of concerns that had to be addressed in the bill, including the fact that intended parents, in order to be recognized as legal parents through a surrogacy with a surrogate in New York, they have to be U.S. citizens or U.S. green card holders. So it would not work for any international client unless that international client is also a U.S. citizen or green card holder. So that's one of the restrictions that I think we'll see how that plays out over time. But a couple of the other additional pieces to the bill that might make it a little bit difficult, certainly more expensive, 
are that it requires that the surrogate be supplied with health insurance, which is not unusual, but that it must be in place for 12 months after the birth of the child. It's to protect the surrogate. So there's no question that that's a good thing on the one hand, but on the other hand, it significantly adds to the expense of the process for the intended parent. So that may have a limiting effect as well. We'll see. As you say, it's it's a step in the right direction, but certainly it's compared to California example, it's a very different legal scenario. Correct. Correct indeed. You know, in most other states, California included, the insurance must be kept in place for about three months after birth if there are no complications. But if there are complications, then it must be kept in place for about six months. Sometimes we might see nine months, just depending on the, the case or the, the agency or the, the parties involved and in what they wish. But uh, it's rare. It's, it's unique to see a requirement that the insurance be in place for 12 months because the way that the New York bill is worded, the insurance must be in place for 12 months, even if she has no complications. So it raises the question, why does she need insurance coverage for all these additional months if she you know, ends up without complications and is healthy and able to resume normal activities? So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, it's certainly an additional cost. Okay, so now, as we know, there'll be many parents either side of the pond wondering how they're going to manage their international surrogacy arrangements. And for those that are currently in the throes of a surrogacy arrangement, how are they finding negotiating the travel restrictions and obtaining of the passport and the quarantine restrictions that are imposed? So as we all know, the presidential proclamations that were issued in 2020 indicated that if a person was in a country that was on the travel ban list and they were in that country in the 14 days prior to attempting travel to the U.S., they would not be allowed to enter. So that's the travel ban. It includes the U.K., it includes Europe and quite a few other countries. But there are exceptions to this travel ban. And so if you qualify for one of those exceptions, you can still travel. Intended parents who are wishing to travel to the U.S. for the birth of their child or children will just about always qualify for one of the exceptions that's referred to as a national interest exception. And in this national interest exception, we as the attorneys will write to the U.S. embassy that is local to where the parents reside, and we will present our arguments that the parents should be approved under this national interest exception. And the argument is that it is in the national interest of the United States that they be allowed to travel here for the birth of their child and to be here before the birth of their child so that they can make medical decisions for the child and and take the child from the hospital when the child is ready to be discharged because that relieves the U.S. healthcare system from making those decisions, from keeping that child, from caring for that child. And we need all of our healthcare resources. Everywhere needs all of their healthcare resources to deal with this pandemic. It's a very persuasive argument, right? So that's very persuasive. Every single parent that we have applied for has been approved. So it shouldn't be a terribly stressful thing for the parents. It just requires some advanced planning. We would suggest starting that part of the travel approval process about three months prior to the due date, petitioning the embassy about six months prior to the due date. It it usually gets approved fairly quickly. And once the NIE or the national interest exception authorization is granted, it is good for 30 days. So the parents must travel within those 30 days to the U.S. And it's important as part of this planning that the parents allow as part of their travel two weeks for quarantine upon arrival 
And just for common sense purposes, an additional two weeks, just in case the child is born early. So we, we urge everyone to plan on traveling about 30 days prior to the due date. I think that's the big difference now is the extent to which intended parents are having to pre-plan and the additional expenses of the longer stays in the States. Yes, uh, there's no question that it requires some advanced planning and it does add cost to make sure that they're here. Um, but, you know, look, I, what I've said to all the intended parents is the journey to family through surrogacy has many obstacles. It requires a lot of planning. Um, this is just one more hurdle. They will clear it. It will be worth it in the end. So it's nothing to panic about. Absolutely. And I think having knowledge in advance that this is just how you're going to have to do it. For many people who've been diagnosed with infertility or they've faced many hurdles to get to this point, actually, maybe it's just another hurdle that they are very happy to accept. It's just one more hurdle. They've cleared so many others in getting this far. This one is definitely one that they will clear as well. And can I just ask, for intended parents arriving in the States, I know they have to do that quarantine, but is there any requirement for them to have had the vaccine? There's no requirement for the parents to have had the vaccine. But at the moment, a newer executive order from the new administration, plus also a new order from the CDC, does require that parents have a COVID test and that it be negative and that all be done within 72 hours of their departure to the U.S. And just in terms of protecting, of reassuring the intended parents about the surrogate and her exposure to the coronavirus, how are you dealing with that? Well, understand, of course, that in the surrogacy agreements, the surrogate agrees to follow all doctor's orders at all times. And the doctor's orders will include instructions regarding reducing, minimizing, I mean, it's almost impossible to completely eliminate the risk of exposure, but reducing it as much as possible and following the public health guidelines that are in place at the time. We can add provisions to these agreements regarding COVID, but to get too specific about what she must or must not do um, is a bit of a red herring because the guidelines will change from region to region. And even within a region, the public health guidelines that might apply could vary. So, for instance, the state of California has a set of guidelines. Los Angeles County has a set of guidelines. Los Angeles City has a set of guidelines all related to COVID and what someone must or must not do. And those things are always constantly changing. So it's really hard to put that pressure. It's, it's, it's impractical to put that pressure on the surrogate of deciding which guidelines to follow. So the best advice is to have her follow her treating physician's advice on the guidelines that apply to her. Absolutely. And can I just ask, in terms of medical appointments, now in the past where intended parents would have flown over and joined for, for various scans, is that happening less now? Are procedures happening more over Zoom? Well, even prior to the pandemic, there were many clinics uh, you know, with more technology installed in their offices that were allowing for remote attendance at an egg retrieval or at an embryo transfer. So that's, of course, been increased during the pandemic. Uh, the travel to the U.S., the national interest argument we spoke of earlier, would not really work just to come over for an egg retrieval or a, um, an embryo transfer. So those will have to be handled remotely. And there are other you know, parts of the process along the way that have to be handled a little bit differently as well, such as the initial medical screening of dead parents. That will need to be done locally at a coordinating clinic 
that coordinates with the clinic in the U.S. If there is a match meeting with a surrogate, they're being done remotely now, whereas previously they could be done in person, but they were even then increasingly becoming more and more remotely handled. So that, it, the pandemic has sort of enhanced some of the things that we're already developing. And just in terms of if the intended parents can't, for, for whatever reason, maybe they have succumbed to COVID, they can't actually travel to America for the time of the birth. What legal steps do you put in place? Do you have a special guardian appointed for the baby? Well, precisely. So at the three-month mark prior to the due date, when we start our travel planning, Another component of that is to begin to think about and to get into place temporary guardianship documents so that someone else would have the same authority the parents would have if they are unable to be here. It's important in in this regard with the pandemic, of course, to think about someone who is local in the U.S. just to prevent any other potential barriers to someone getting here. Uh, But we would recommend that it be a friend, a family member, someone else other than uh, there's a Sometimes the, this notion that the surrogate who's been carrying the baby can also just continue caring for the baby after the baby is born, but that's a terrible idea. It's not really well supported in the industry for many reasons, including the bonding that could occur and the, you know, the dangers of that. So it definitely should not be the surrogate, but somebody else that they trust. And if you are based in, in England and you don't actually have friends and family over in the States, are you able to source temporary guardians? Yes, So most parents have been able to source a temporary guardian either through hiring a nanny or a nurse or a caregiver of some kind. There have been some agencies who have volunteered. Uh, We try to recommend they refrain from that just because there's liability there and it it could be a long time. So rather than engage the agency with it, it should be a professional caregiver. But um, everyone that we've worked with has been able to find somebody uh, so where there's a will, there's a way. If they don't have any leads, we're certainly happy to help them find somebody. Yes. And I think now we are more used to this pandemic and pre-planning and people are accepting they're going to have to travel. So hopefully those sort of situations are, are the exception. Can I just ask finally about the the passport, the issuing of the US passport, which used to be a sort of golden ticket or not? Uh, depending on your tax situation, when a baby was born by a surrogacy in America. What's the situation with that? Well, in order to apply for a passport, you first need the birth certificate. Those are still pretty much being produced in an expedited fashion. However, the U.S. passport process, which had been subject to an expediting process, is no longer really available. That expediting is uh, right now looking more like four to six weeks. So instead of three to five days, it's four to six weeks. So parents need to plan on either waiting it out or finding another alternative. There are some exceptions to this rule, of course, and if there's any medical emergency, the parents can obtain the newborn's passport within 72 hours, but they will be interviewed specifically with regard to the extent of the emergency. It must be documented by a physician. Uh, And if they approve the emergency, then they can get a passport very quickly. Otherwise, there are other alternatives. Uh, Many of our UK clients have been able to get either a UK passport or a UK emergency travel document for the child. So if the child, my understanding, and you can correct me on this, but understanding is if the child can be automatically deemed as British at birth, then the UK passport can be issued. And this is a process that used to take months, and they've been able to produce passports now within several days 
even as fast as 24 hours in a couple of cases. So that's one avenue. If the child is not automatically British at birth, uh, they can register to have the child recognized as British. And that process may take a little bit longer, but still the result is a British travel document for the child. Once you have your baby, you don't want any unnecessary delays in, in going home. Exactly. Everyone wants to get home as quickly as possible, which is understandable. Well, thank you so much, Rich. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I look forward to catching up again with you soon. My pleasure, Sarah. Same here. You take care and have a great night. And you. Thank you so much.